Hey, and welcome back to the Dropship Podcast. John here doing the intro. We've got a special episode for you today. Today, we're actually going to replay something you haven't heard before on this podcast, but something I did in one of our Facebook groups on the 24th of May. I did a dropshipping Ask Me Anything. It was a solo show, uh, and so we've pulled out the audio and the video of that, and we're putting it up here for you guys to listen to on the Dropship Podcast, and I covered a range of topics in that Ask Me Anything. We talked about Google Ads. We talked about getting suppliers and, you know, at what point do you consider changing your niche if that's not working out. We talked about apps for Shopify. We talked about uh, how much competition is enough competition and how should competition influence your thinking about choosing a niche for high ticket dropshipping. And I took a whole bunch of questions from people in the group on the fly. So you'll get to hear a bit of off the cuff John uh, answering people's questions. So this one's a bit of a longer episode, but there's a ton of great value in here. So give it a listen. And as always, we answer questions just like this, Ben and I, in our members group at at Dropship Breakthrough every single day of the week. Sometimes we do it in public like this, but generally we're doing this every day of the week inside our members group. So if you're looking to start a high ticket dropshipping business, jump into Dropship Breakthrough today and do it with us. Just go to dropshipbreakthrough.com forward slash join to join today. You'll see the link to that in the show notes. So enjoy. Talk soon. How do you find the right keywords and negative keywords for your Google Ads campaigns? So thanks for that question, Darren. Uh, So diving right in, for a high-ticket dropshipping business, one of our first traffic source is usually Google Shopping Ads being a specific campaign type within the broader Google Ads platform. And so with Google Shopping Ads, uh, as opposed to, say, search text ads, you don't actually set in a positive sense keywords. So you don't set targeted keywords as such. That's not the way the Google Shopping thing works. Google Shopping is where Google takes um, your product data, so information about your products, which you submit to Google Merchant Center by your product feed. And so that data includes things like your product title, your product image, your product description, price, so on and such forth. And it takes that information and it matches that with search terms that people are making on Google. And that's how um, it's determined which keywords your products do or don't show, do or don't show for. And Google uses its uh, algorithm, um, its learning, et cetera, et cetera, to work out what search terms are related to your products based on your product data. Now, what you can do with Google Shopping campaigns is you can set negative keywords. And so those are search, search terms that you don't want your um, your products to show for at any point in time. And so kind of in reverse, using negative keywords in reverse, we will effectively tell Google what keywords we do want to be shown for, even though we don't actually say these are the keywords I want to be shown for. We say these are the keywords I do not want to be shown for. And so that narrows down the number of different search terms that Google can match you up with right? Google does an okay job at matching products to search terms, but it's by no means perfect. And quite a lot of the time you can get search terms that are either um, completely irrelevant to your products or are not high enough value for your business. As in, you're not going to get a good result or a good enough result from those search terms. So, and that's, I think, where the real trick is when we talk about the right keywords for your business. There are a lot of search terms out there that will in some way relate to the products you're going to sell, but you shouldn't advertise on all of them because some are unlikely to lead to a conversion on your website in you know, a quick enough time that you will be happy to pay for the clicks on that search term. And so when we think about the right keywords, we want to think, or all keywords, let's say, we want to think about Um, assigning keywords a value to our business. And the value is the likelihood that that keyword is going to produce a conversion. So somebody being on your website and buying a product. And so if you think about it in that way and you do some simple keyword research, which you can do um, using a tool like Ubersuggest or you can use Google's own free keyword planner, which you can find in the Google Ads interface, you can look at, well, here's all put in a root 
search term. So, you know, let's say if you sell kegerators, your root search term would be kegerator. And then and then that keyword research tool is going to show you all of the search terms that people, not all of them, but a good number of them, the search terms that people search um, uh, that relate to that. And so you could look at that and say, you know, just as an exercise this is, and say, well, using my judgment at this point in time, what search terms on here do I feel have more or less value based on the likelihood that they are going to produce a conversion? And so when you think about it that way, you think about the search term, you think about what's the psychology behind the search. So simple example of that. If somebody just searches the word kegerator, can you tell me exactly what they're making, the reason why they're making that search? You can't, right? Whereas if somebody searches the search term kegerator for sale, we can immediately say that person is interested with a high likelihood of purchasing a kegerator. Whereas the person who just searches the word kegerator, well, maybe they do want to buy one. Maybe they want to fix one. Maybe they want to <clears throat> learn about some other aspect of them. Maybe they want to hire one. You know, you just don't know exactly what that person wants. So that search term has a lower value to me if I'm selling kegerators than, than the kegerators for sale search term, at, at, at which point I can definitely say, well, that person is in the market to buy the type of product that I have. Now, whether they want the exact ones that I have or whether they want to buy it in a physical or online, you don't exactly know, but we're still closer to knowing that they want to buy something. So that has a higher value for me. And so I'm going to be more comfortable saying that's the right sort of keyword for me than a than a, um, a search term that is not um, as valuable. Whereas if somebody searches kegerator for hire and I sell kegerators, that search term does not have much value to me in the sense of Google Ads anyway. I'm not paying for that in, in any way, shape or form. I'm going to set that as a negative keyword. So you can assign keywords levels of value. And the way that we teach Google Ads in the dropship breakthrough course is to work out three levels of value. So your least valuable, medium valuable, and most valuable keywords, right? And then we target each of those groups of keywords in their own Google Shopping campaign. And within each Google Shopping campaign for each level of keywords, we assign different bids. So for the least valuable search terms, you can't escape those. You've got to have some of those. You assign the lowest bids. For the medium value search terms, you assign higher than the low value, um, but a medium kind of level bid. And then for the highest value search terms that we think are most likely to lead to conversions on our products, we're going to put them in their own campaign and we're going to set the highest bids there, right? Because we want to get the most amount of that traffic. We want to be the most competitive there that we can. Now, how this looks in general senses for most high-ticket dropshipping accounts, not all, but most, is that those three levels will be determined by with the lowest priority, the lowest value traffic being generic type traffic, as in there's no mention of brand or a model of a product or anything like that. The next, the medium value stuff is going to be people who are searching for a brand and then the product. Like they're looking for a brand, but they're still not talking about a specific product in their search term. And then the highest value traffic to us is people who are searching for the exact product by name that we sell on our website, right? So if somebody goes on and searches an exact model of kegerator, you know, by model number or model name or something like that, it's very would be very rare to say that they are not in the market to buy that product. And we know we have that exact product on our site and we can serve them that exact product in a product ad. So those search terms tend to have the highest value for us and we want to get all of that traffic that we can. So we're going to bid uh, as much as we can usually to get that traffic. Noting that Google Shopping ads are the best in the bottom of the funnel to the upper middle of the sales funnel, if you think of a, the traditional sales funnel idea. Google shopping ads, Google ads in general for high ticket dropshipping are terrible at the top of the funnel. You're rarely going to use them for much top of funnel traffic, right? That's because the you know it's a long time from there to somebody actually making a conversion on your site. You're going to pay for a lot of clicks, spend a lot of money before you see any return on that traffic. 
that sort of traffic is much better to pursue with an organic traffic strategy. So search engine optimization, et cetera, et cetera, which is turns one day will be your largest traffic source for one of these businesses. So if we're saying that Google shopping is best at the bottom to maybe the middle of the funnel, then generally speaking, that's where you're going to, those type of search terms, people who are searching for an exact product, that's, that represents the bottom of the funnel. So that's kind of how you think about the keywords though. How do you find the right keywords? Well, the, the answer is lies in what do you think the value to your business is of a keyword. In the beginning, when you're first starting, you are using your judgment to work that out because you don't have conversion data yet. Now, as you start to run ads, um, you will see that particular search terms will convert for you um, and variations on search terms. And so you will start to, uh, over time, readjust your, your assumptions around what search terms hold what value. And so that mix might change a little bit and that's completely normal. Um, but in the beginning, that's the, that's the sort of call you're making. Now, when it comes to negative keywords, you know, th there's a bit of a gray, you know, it's a pretty gray area here, right? So most of your negative keywords, if, if you think about those levels that I talked about with the like generic branded model specific or product specific kind of searches, generic terms, that's a big ball of traffic there. That's the biggest ball of traffic, right? Um, and some of that might be relevant to your products, but it just won't convert highly enough to make it worthwhile advertising on those products. And if you think back to a previous live I did in the group, and if you scroll through the group, you'll find it, where I talked about knowing your Google Ads metrics, I talked about the relationship between cost per clicks and bids, conversion rate, and how that converts uh, margins and how that converts into your ROAS, right? So if you're running a high ticket dropshipping business, you're gonna need a return on ad spend usually of around 10 times ROAS, right? Um, a lot of search terms, they just won't convert highly enough for you to get to that the level that you need. Um, and so if that's the case, you just should not be advertising on those. And so you should exclude those. And so where the the line is though for varies um, from business to business. Some businesses can only be profitable with Google Ads with a more restrictive approach to generic traffic, so as in they need to exclude more and be really much more fine-tuned, while I've seen others that can be quite broad with their advertising in that sort of low-value keyword bucket and still get a good return. And sometimes that's simply because the cost per click in different markets is, is different. So I, I can see some people that can get a ton of traffic at, you know, a 10 cent bid. So 10 cents per click on average, while others, you know, they're, 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 if they go below 30 cents, they don't really get anything in that sort of low value group. And so their bids tend to be higher, which means their cost per sale is higher for the same conversion rate. And so they can afford to spend less there. There is not really a right or wrong answer there. Um, as you advertise, as you run your Google shopping campaigns, you're going to look in your search term reports and you're going to start to see, um, you know, what's coming in. And, and over time, this, this is, this is a, an iterative process. You don't know the right keywords and all the negative keywords the day you start. You learn that over months of running your ads and you refine your negative keyword list. You refine the keywords you're targeting um, and you gradually improve your results on your Google ads. Um, and so I think that's um, that's the answer to that question, I think. Um, uh, so for now, at least, if you've got a follow-up question to that, um, Darren, please uh, feel free to um, post that as, <coughs> as another comment. So we move along now to the next um, pre-submitted question. And that question is from Juan Casemsri. I'm sorry, Juan, if I've absolutely butchered your name there. I'm not quite sure on how to pronounce that exactly. But Juan asks, if I'm struggling to secure suppliers, should I consider changing my niche? Uh, so Juan, obviously, this is a close to the start of the process where you found, you know, what products you want to sell and you're going out and looking um, to get some suppliers from those products. Um, and so, you know, sometimes it can be the case that, you know, you, you start making those contacts and, you know, it's, it can be a bit of a struggle uh, sometimes. 
I think maybe we see this in probably less than definitely less than 10% of people who who give the the this this step of the process a go the 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 supplier approval stage having significant difficulties here so there's there's probably a range of questions to ask before saying is this a yes or no question there's very few of those um so the first question uh, or the first reason that I see people struggling to secure supplies is because they're not calling them. They're sending emails and, you know, just rely on email outreach to get supplies. So that's not something that we recommend. Uh, the simple reason for that is, is that, you know, you send an email, um, you know, most of the time it's going to get ignored or not even looked at. I mean, that that's the reality. If you send out an email, probably 30 to 40% of people will even open that email. Uh, so automatically right there, if you're trying to build your business around something that has a 30% uh, hit rate, that's not really a great basis to start your business around. So my first question, and I don't know your circumstances, obviously, um, as relates to this uh, question one, but for anybody who's wondering about this, you need to be calling suppliers on the phone and talking to people if you can. Now, yes, you can supplement that with email, contact and yes there are going to be suppliers who it's very difficult to find a phone number for and so you, they might just have email or they might just have an online um, account form that they want you to fill out but as much as you can you should be trying to call them now if you're calling them um, and you're getting them on the phone and you know it's not seeming particularly easy um, but you are having conversations. Uh, the next thing I guess that I sometimes see people that leads to struggles is that if a supplier is giving you a bit of pushback uh, or sounding like they don't want to do it, uh, a lot of the times people will end the conversation there and won't dig into the why is that. So dealing with objections um, is sometimes once again, not always, but with some supplies is what's needed. So if the supplier says, oh, no, look, we're not really into that right now, you want to ask them why. Why is that? Or they might say, we're not taking new deals right now. They might say, we're, we're not doing drop shipping right now or some variation. There, there is literally, there can be a, a range of different things that suppliers can say. I won't dive into them all right now because we've been here for quite some time. But the key thing is, is that whenever somebody raises an objection with you, whether that's um, a supplier or whether that's a customer in relation to a sale, you always want to dig deeper, try and drill deeper with them into what is behind that objection. So if somebody says, well, um, you know, we're not doing drop shipping right now, um, you can't just say, oh, okay, great. No worries. I'll talk to you later and hang up the phone. You should say, oh, okay, that's interesting. Why is it, if you don't mind me asking, why is it that, that you don't do dropshipping? Um, and see what they can get they get into. They might say, well, we don't like shipping out individual products. Uh, we just prefer to deal with bulk orders. Oh, okay. What, what's, what's the problem with individual orders, you would then ask? Oh, well, you know, it just it's a bit too costly for us. You know, there's a greater overhead in doing that. We have to do more packaging, et cetera, et cetera. You say, oh, okay, yep, I can see that. Uh, would it help? if we uh, added a drop shipping um, fee to each order, like $10, like how much does it cost you to package up a, a product to go out? How much time is that? Oh, it's, it's 10, 15 minutes. All right. Well, if we work off an average salary, then probably, you know, $10 is going to cover 15 minutes of somebody's time to in your warehouse to put a package on a box. Uh, sorry, to put a sticker on a box and get it ready to go out. Yeah, okay. We'll just put that, would that help you? If we covered that 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 admin cost um, that you're struggling with, oh yeah, okay. So you pro you propose a solution, and so that's why you want to handle objections, is because oftentimes the objection is either based on a misunderstanding, misinformation, or something like that. And so when you dig into it with them, not always, but sometimes there's actually a solution that you can find with that supplier to make working with them possible. Right now, most people who try this, I would say, outside of our program, are going to honestly bitch out when it comes to calling suppliers and are going to try and take the easy route. Right? 
People who are in our program don't tend to do that because we tell them not to. So if you're one of the people that's willing to go the extra mile with suppliers, you're going to get more supplier approvals and you're going to stand out ahead of your competition. So um, that's the next thing I would say. Now, if you've gone through and you've exhausted, you've called people, you've exhausted everything, um, you're struggling to secure supplies, the question is like how much are you struggling? Like if you're completely striking out, you're at zero um, and you feel like you've really done all you can do, right? Uh, you've done the things I've just mentioned. You've done all you can do. Then, yeah, sure, can change your change your market. Choose a different niche. Choose a different market. It's not really much extra work to flip things at that point and just look at a different option. If you've got some approvals, but you're just struggling with some suppliers, um, that's not necessarily a reason to change. You know, so like if you've got a supplier list that had you had 20 names and you've gone through and you've got five approvals, that's enough to get started, right? Because you're going to get more approvals as time goes on. It's always the case. You don't get all the supplies in the beginning. You don't necessarily get all the supplies you want in the beginning, but definitely you're going to get more supplies over time than the amount that you start with in, in almost every single case I've ever seen. So, um, you can get started with a lower number of supplies than you would ideally like, start making some sales, continue to grow your business and some of those other supplies that gave you a no in the beginning um, will come on board at some point in the future and you'll continue to grow your business. So, um, there's not really a yes or no answer. It all depends on what you've done to date and you know what your hit rate has been. But like I said, I mean, if you're at zero, you've done some good hard work there, then yeah. Sure. Continue, consider changing your, your niche for sure. So thanks for that question one. All right. I'm going to flip over to, we've got some live questions coming in now. Um, thank you very much for those live questions. I'm going to flip over to some of those um, and answer some of those. So um, the first one is from Lee. Hello, Lee. Thanks for uh, stopping in and having a watch. Uh, Lee asks, any advice on getting started with GA4 when the time comes? So advice being that for anybody who's in our program in Dropship Breakthrough, um, you're going to get advice on how to do that later this week. Um, how to how to uh, how to connect it? The best way to connect it with Shopify, um, and then some opening advice on how to use it. Um, GA4. So this is Google Analytics. Sorry for anybody who doesn't know the lingo. Google Analytics, which is one of our, which is probably the primary data storage tool that we use um, to help store data, and that, that's what Google Analytics is, by the way. It's a data storage, primarily a data storage platform, uh, rather than actually an analytics platform, but that's the primary one we tend to use for these businesses uh, is undergoing a major change um, from July onwards. Um, the whole thing's changing the way it integrates with Shopify um, and the way what it actually does for you is changing very much. And uh, suffice to say, at this point, it does not appear to be anywhere near as good as the old Google Analytics that Google is moving away from, whether or not they're going to improve it now over time, but may well be the case, we don't know. But um so the answer is yes. Um, if you're, you know, not in our course, um, you're going to have to change, but you're using Google Analytics, you're of course going to have to change before the 1st of July. If you uh, don't switch over, you're, you're obviously not going to be able to access data about your business because it won't, it, Google says it won't be available. So, you know, that's about the extent of it right now. I there There are other places you can learn about it. I don't, think there's anything I can share on a screen that's going to show you how it works or anything on this call. Um, but, uh, you know, if that's one of the things that if you're watching this and that's one of the things you'd love to learn about, then, um, you know, join our program. You'll learn how to do that properly as well as every other thing you need to do properly um, to grow a high-ticket dropshipping business. So, thanks for that, Lee. Uh, going to jump over to another live question now, Melissa. Uh, hello, Melissa. Thank you for asking a question. Melissa's question is, how knowledgeable should one be in their niche? Will we be getting questions about specific functionalities to do with products or does that go to the manufacturer? Thanks for the question, Melissa. Good one. Question a lot of people do ask. I think there's two schools of thought on this um, and I have one and I think Ben has one as well. Um, you know, my... Uh, 
partner on the Dropship podcast and, and Dropship Breakthrough. Um, so Ben is very much in the camp of um, he likes to he likes to pick things that or he likes people to pick things that they're passionate about. Um, and uh, I think something he would say that into the future that may become more and more important. And I think I'm on on the other hand, don't think it's that necessary. So I'm not going to make the whole argument from Ben's perspective because uh, we've we've had that before on the Dropship podcast, and you know we can have it again at some point in the future, and he can speak for himself. But to my thinking, the answer is no. You don't need to be knowledgeable about your niche, and um, you know, uh, or nor do you need to have any you know particular real interest in it either. It doesn't need to be products that you use personally. It doesn't need to be products that you've got a lot of personal experience using or anything like that. Um, uh, you know, I personally have never sold anything that I'm a personal user of, um, at least not regularly or, or in, uh, uh, you know, have any experience using. So I don't think it's necessary. I've built successful businesses not knowing that. Um, it does help though, right? I mean, obviously, if, if you've got an idea that you, is something that you personally are involved with or you have some interest in or experience in or something like that, then yes, that's probably going to be a, a niche idea that you would gravitate towards. And it's going to give you, um, you know, some advantages, I think. But what's more important though is that that niche actually checks the criteria of being the right dropshipping niche and one of those criteria is not that you have a personal interest in it so we have a dropship breakthrough our own set of criteria that we take people through to um you know to uh talk about you know what's the right products to sell what's the right market to be in and we've talked about that on the dropship podcast as well so if you haven't listened to that some of the early episodes around finding a niche i think maybe around 12, 13, 14, somewhere around there. I don't know off the top of my head. There's a lot now. Um, we actually walk through what those are. So that's all out there, kind of um, pretty much public information. Um, so an idea has to tick those boxes first. If it doesn't tick those boxes, it doesn't matter how interested you are in it or how knowledgeable you are about it. It's still not going to work, right? So as a sort of if, – if you're sitting there and you've got ideas and you've gone through – some some criteria and and you've got ideas that have checked all the criteria boxes and then you've got three ideas and you're like well there's one that I'm personally inter more interested in than others then sure go and do that right because you know it'll probably feel a little bit easier to you but if you're sitting there and you've got three ideas and they check check all the boxes of the of the of the you know viable sort of market criteria and you're not personally interested in any of them then that shouldn't be a reason to not do them um, is, is I guess where I would go with this. You'll learn a lot, right? And yes, you're going to have to learn things, but there's tons, going to be tons of information about your products. You're going to upload all of these products. You're going to read all about them. You're going to have a lot more knowledge just by doing that than the average punter out there in most cases. Now, yes, you will get questions often about specific functionalities uh, from customers. It's important to say you are going to do all of the customer service for these businesses. You, and when I say you, I mean your business is the customer service. That's, you know, and I always say a dropshipping business is a marketing and a service business. That's your two major things that you're doing is marketing and serving customers. Your customers are not going to your supplier for the answers. Your supplier doesn't want to hear from your customers to give them the answers. Um, if they were having to deal with all of your customers, then there would be no point in them dealing with you. Um, as Why would they supply you if they're basically going to do your job for you? Why wouldn't they just sell direct to the customers? So, yes, you're going to handle some you know, inquiries. You're going to get some curly questions uh, and you're going to be able to find answers to those curly questions. Somebody calls up ask a question that you don't know about the specific functionalities of the product, say, hey, look, I'm just a bit uncertain on that at the moment. What I'm going to do is I'm going to go and get an answer for you. I'm going to call you back in five minutes or 10 minutes or whatever you want to say. What do you do then? Pick up the phone to the supplier, ask them that question. They'll give you the answer. Your suppliers, generally speaking, will be more than happy to serve you because you are their customer. So there'll be lots of opportunities for you to learn things from your suppliers about their products, 
um, and then pass that information on to uh, your customers that you're providing customer service to. So honestly, this shouldn't be something that you overthink too much uh, or let it be something that holds you back. The answers are always there. You can always find them. Um, after you know running one of these businesses for three months, you're going to be an absolute expert in your products, um, and uh, you know you'll you'll find it's actually a lot easier than you might be thinking about right now. But if you haven't actually started yet, so thank you, Melissa, for your question. That was a good question. Uh, all right, I'm going to go back to pre-submitted questions now, uh, and I've got one here from Andrew Brensinger. Uh, thank you for your question, Andrew. Andrew asks, can you comment on what apps you'd recommend starting off with in Shopify? I installed a couple like product reviews and Klaviyo, but my store speed is low from too much JavaScript already. Good question, Andrew. So there's a, there's a couple of things there's a couple of things wrapped up in this question. I think um, <clears throat> to to uh, comment on the first part of the question, I think which is what app, apps you'd recommend starting off with in Shopify. The answer is always as few as you can, um, because some apps do, um, as Andrew's noted, or can have an impact on how your site loads, um, and also there's probably some that people have that provide negligible actual value that they're paying for as well. Um, which you could maybe save some money if you don't have too many apps also. But particularly for apps that run or that have some impact on the front end of your site, usually they will run JavaScript, um, which is a, a, you know, a code script that runs while your page is loading. If you've got too many of those in there or more than you need or ones that are fairly superfluous, then all of those uh, scripts are running when your page loads and it, it can mean that your page takes longer to load, which can have impacts on the customer experience. It can have impacts on um, how your your pages perform in your Google ads. It can have impacts on your search engine optimization efforts. And so we generally try to avoid bloating our website pages with lots of code from uh, unless it's unless it's necessary, unless we, we have a reason to do it. So um, it's a good question. And I'll get to the second part, which is about the actual page speed and, and all of that in a moment. But the, the apps that I'd recommend starting off within Shopify, um, some of which it's important to remember with apps that not all apps affect how your page loads. So an example of this is Klaviyo, which is one of the ones that Andrew's mentioned. Klaviyo is a back-end app that just connects your Shopify store to your Klaviyo account. Klaviyo is an email uh, autoresponder tool, right? So you use it to send automated emails to your customers, promoting your products and all of that sort of stuff. So it has a connection with Shopify where it can pull out customer data to send them emails. Um, so that app, unless you're using like the pop-up functionality in it, which I don't recommend because it's not very good, there are better things to do that. That app doesn't have any impact on your on the front end of your website. So it shouldn't actually really be loading anything um, that's taking up much um, much page load time. Whereas one like a, a review app, which does actually place things into your product page, is have going to have some impact on your page load time. So it's always important to make those distinctions. For apps that do not add anything on the front end of your website, you can have as many of them as you want, right? And it's not actually going to affect how your page loads. Um, so just make that distinction. Obviously, there's the cost of those apps that, you know, you don't want to pay for things that you're not really using. You don't want to add apps just because you heard somebody on TikTok talking about an app they use. That's not a good reason. Actually think of the use case for the app and say, do I actually really need to do this thing um, before you add an app? If the answer is yes, then go and add it. If the answer is no, then don't. Um, so for back-end apps, have as many of them as you want. For front-end apps... The question I think when you're making a decision about them is, do I need the functionality that they're going to add to my website? A supplementary question to that is, do I need an app to do that? So if you can pay a developer that you could hire on somewhere like Upwork or something like that, a hundred bucks to code something into your site, maybe you don't need an app that you're going to pay $29 a month for, right? So there might sometimes be a slightly higher cost in paying a developer to hard code something into your site, in which case it's there and it's just there forever. Um, 
than paying a slightly lower monthly cost, but that is this, most apps that you pay a dollar cost for, it's a subscription basis on Shopify. So you, over 12 months, you know, that, that front cost might only be $19, but you're going to pay that 12 times. So whereas if the coding solution would only cost you $100, then why wouldn't you do the coding solution? That's the better outcome and it's not potentially going to affect your page load time um, because it, if it's done coded in properly, it should have a, a, a lower impact on that. So once again, another question to ask. Now, what apps I recommend starting for in Shopify? Um, certainly, you're going to have an email autoresponder app, so Klaviyo or Drip. Um, you're going to have an online chat tool so that you can have engage your customers with online chat. Um, there, I would recommend if you're starting out either talk.to, talk2, or Tidio. I didn't used to recommend Tidio, by the way, because it used to be really slow, but they have assured us that their app now loads asynchronously, which is also a word that you should look out for. Loading asynchronously means that it loads outside of your page loading, um, and so it shouldn't have an impact on your page load speeds. So you're going to have an online chat. Um, you need the feeds for Google Shopping app by some process info media that provides your product feed into Merchant Center. So once again, that app has no impact on your page load times because it's just a connection app that connects you, the back end of your Shopify with another with another platform out there and provides data. So that doesn't have anything to do with your page load time. So once again, that, that's another one that should have no impact to you. Um, you are going to need a, a some sort of review app. Um, so Andrew mentioned product reviews. Uh, I recommend using stamped.io. Um, if you don't want to use stamp.io for some reason, the next one I'd recommend is judge.me. You're going to need, probably most people are going to need some functionality around uh, product options and variants. Not most, a lot of people are going to need that just simply because their products come with um, a range of options or variants that are greater than what Shopify can handle out of the box. Um, you do often find that with high ticket products. Once again, not all, but I'd say probably about 50% of people are using some sort of um, product variant, product option type app. I don't have a favorite. I'll be honest and say I don't like any of them <laughs> that much, but sometimes they are necessary. So there's like product options uh, by Bold. There's, there's a whole bunch out there. Just the, the main thing is going and looking, like assessing a number of options on the Shopify app store and working out which one is going to give you the outcome that you like, either from a design perspective or from the the, the um, actual things that it's going to provide for you. Like what are, what are the benefits of it? What are the features? And do they line up with what you need? Um, but I don't really like those that much. So you're going to have that. Um, I recommend getting the JSON-LD app, um, which is uh, an SEO thing. Once again, uh, deals with all your schema markup and all that sort of thing. Um, great for SEO. Um, once again, that's a back-end app, right? It's not going to really place any, you know, page load stuff on you. Um, so you're going to have that. Uh, by the way, if you're watching, you want to chime in with any that you love, feel free to add some comments about apps that, that you feel um, have been good for you in the beginning. So you're going to have that. And I honestly, I can't think. I'm, I'm probably just having a bit of a mental blank here. Nothing else is jumping to mind that you need sort of from um, from day one. Uh, now, once again, there might be some other, other things out there. There's going to be other things that you add over time as well. I think it's important to say. Um, uh, but, um, you know, those are kind of like the core things. You, you don't need a lot of stuff is the answer, actually. You know, over time... You know, you're going to add in possibly things like a, a loyalty program or some sort of affiliate software or all of these sort of things. But in the beginning, the, the answer is to keep it as simple as possible when it comes to apps. So thank you for that. Oh, sorry. Before I move on from that, I should say the thing about page load. So in the beginning, you might run your site through um, like uh, Google PageSpeed Insights or something like that. It's important to note that in a lot of cases, those things are kind of red herrings, right? So nobody 
that I see that runs a Shopify site is getting the best page load times possible. There's just some realities around Shopify and page load times. Usually they look low in somewhere like Google PageSpeed Insights, but they're not. And this, this will sound a bit funny. A new site isn't actually, the, the scores are not calculated based on real world users. They're simulated scores because there is no real, there's not enough real world data on your site yet to actually calculate you a score that's based on any real world data. So it's simulated and those simulations are not very accurate in my opinion. Um, and the simple test is, the, the simplest test about page load times is load your thing on a device. Like you, you can look at it sometimes and it's like you've got a score of 30 and then which is low and then you go and actually load it on a device and it takes a second to load. Go and get a fresh device that hasn't loaded your site for, you know, and you go out with your friends um, or you meet up with your family or something, grab their phone and say, hey, can I just load my, my website on your thing? I want to see how it loads. You know, put it into their phone. They've never been on your site before. It loads in a second. You don't have a page speed issue, right? Like that. That's that's the real world test here. So that's what I recommend. I don't recommend reading too much into what Shopify says in their interface, which is just based off what Google says in theirs, or anything like that, right? Um, a lot of those things are not accurate. The customer experience is number one. And you can test that just by loading your site on devices. You'll see what the customer experience is. Uh, if you see a problem, then sure, address it. But most of the cases I have where people come to me and say, oh, my site's loading too slow because this tool told me it was, we actually go and look at it. There's very little they can do to improve it and it's not actually loading that slow. Now, yes, look in Google PageSpeed Insights and if you see like in their little you know, you, you put your, you get your score, you look further down the page, it'll tell you what's loading and how much time it's taking. If you see things in there that are taking like a, like a megabyte of, of, of data or something like that, then you deal with that. And the, the classic one most people uh, miss is they embed YouTube videos on their product pages um, and those videos in the standard YouTube embed are horribly large and you shouldn't do that. There is a way to load those into your page so that they don't auto-load the whole video before somebody's even made the decision to watch it. Um, that's probably the number one thing that people get wrong on their, particularly on their product pages on Shopify, is they put YouTube videos in uh, and they haven't used, loaded them in a, what we call a thin load way. Once again, if you're in Dropship uh, Breakthrough, um, we have a theme guru who is about to put some new content in our course as well as uh, an updated Superstore theme which has our changes in it which we'll be giving to people. Um, and if you'd like to get that, uh, join our program, you'll get that. Um, we're not going to be sharing that stuff anywhere else. But that's, that's the things to watch out for. So just don't read too much into those page load times, to be honest. All right, let's see. We've got some more questions coming in. Just bear with me. I like to be able to see people's names as they ask the questions. So I've got a question here. Sorry, I can't see your name. So, hi, in terms of sales in the first few months, what would you generally see? I've been live for a week and made a sale. Very happy. Well done. Well done. Um, that's fantastic uh, to have made a sale. I'm I'm happy to hear that. That's a great feeling. Uh, remember that feeling. The first sale is an amazing feeling. Um, and, uh, even, even when you've, uh, got, um, even when you've been doing this for some time and, um, you've got, uh, you know, you got your fifth store or something. Yeah. I just, um, bought a new store recently, um, new store to me. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I paid for it and then the very next day I made a sale or something like that. It was fantastic feeling. Um, even though it's like, you know, the, I don't know how many thousand orders, uh, online I've made. So, it, look, I want to preface the answer here by saying results can vary widely in the opening stages. And the opening stage results are by no means indicative of where you would be in 12 months or 18 months or two years or three years. Remembering that running, building and running a business, even if it's a more simple low cost of entry business like a dropship business should still be seen as a multi-year pursuit, right? You've got to be in it for that time. You've got to be prepared that you're going to be in it. And so when you have that mindset that like I'm going for the big win, I'm, I'm in for the big win here, what happens in the first month or the second month or whatever, it doesn't really matter. 
because that's not going to indicate where you get to over time. Like in my first business, Chic Chandeliers, which is I think still online somewhere, I sold that in 2017, so that's quite some time ago now. You know, I made, it took me 10 days to make my first sale. So question asking person, you're way ahead of me already. Um, and I made two sales in my first month. Now that's, that, that, that was my first, that went on to be, you know, quite a decently successful business for me. Um, and that is what I would probably by my standards today consider a slow start, but that happens. Um, you know, I've seen other people who have made 25,000 in sales in their first month. I store I just bought in its first month, it did 29,000 in sales. So results can vary widely, right? Uh, and so that 29,000 in sales, I think that was 15 or 16 orders, right? So, you know, new site for me now is, is doing that much. My first site, it was two orders. So you can see there two orders versus 15 orders in the first month. There's a wide difference there. Right now, where this site I've just bought is going to be in, you know, I had my first site for over a couple of years. Where I'm going to be with this one in a couple of years, who knows? But um, that's not going to determine it. So, you know, you could be anywhere from a couple of sales up to 20, 30, 40 sales a month in your first month. You know, that that's what's possible. That's on the upper end. But, you know, I think most people, I mean, that that's in number of sales. Obviously, the once again, the revenue off those sales is going to vary wildly because you might be selling products for $1,000. You might be selling products for $3,000. And so that's obviously just in and of itself going to fluctuate the, the revenue numbers um, in the first month. You know, I've seen... Yeah, once again, anywhere from a few thousand dollars in the first month to 25,000, 30,000, um, even 50,000 um, in the first month, which is certainly uh, a bit rarer, right, to get up to those numbers, but you could be and anywhere in between. Um, so, you know, generally average probably five to 10,000 first month. I think. Uh, and, and that makes sense. I mean, your first month, you are learning everything. Uh, you know, nothing usually about running traffic. And so, even with guidance, you're going to get close. But there's there's things you can only learn by doing this. You know, you start doing some customer service, you learn about your business. And so, you know, the first month is, um, you know, is, is a massive learning curve and experience. The first three months, are a massive learning curve and experience. The first six months, you're still learning. You're gradually making improvements and there'll be some ups and downs over time. The first 12 months in one of these businesses is fairly unpredictable, as in you should see sort of growth over that time, but you'll have months where you go back a bit and then you jump up and then you go back a bit and then you jump up. That will that will happen a bit in the first 12 months. So great to see you're making sales. The important thing is, is that next, you know, next month you make more sales than the first month In your third month, you make more than, than the month before. Um, the numbers don't really matter. What's, what matters is that you're making progress. Um, so congratulations and good on you. All right. So follow-up question, live question. Hi, where should the focus be mainly in the first month of being live? Oh, okay. I think there's an updated version of that. More email marketing, ads optimization, etc. or getting into SEO. I just have limited time with work. Just interested to hear the timeline of priorities and um, that was from Tom. Thank you, Tom, for dropping in and listening. Um, and yeah, certainly, you know, before you go live, you're building your business. Uh, it's a very linear process, right? It's, it's kind of very clear cut, very linear. You know, you find your niche, set up a website, call supplies, get approved with supplies, put their products on your site, launch your business, right? Very step-by-step um, -step process there that doesn't really have any deviation in it. When Once you've gone live, you then have this whole world of things that you could do um, and it can seem like there is a never-ending list of things to do and the reality is there is a never-ending list of things to do and that's super exciting because everything you have to do that you could do is an opportunity to grow your business. And so when you're faced with endless opportunities to grow your business, that's so exciting. It can also be a bit stressful because you want to get there now and you want to do all those things now and you can't see a possible way that you could fit all of them into your day um, or the next month or the next six months even and you're, you're still there going, when am I ever going to get to any of this stuff? Don't stress about that. It's a fantastic thing. All right? You're going to do a bit at a time and you're going to make gradual improvements. But 
During the first month of being live, I think you can really slim this down a lot to what you need to focus on. You absolutely need to focus on what you what you have, right? So what you have is your first lot bunch of traffic. Your first customers are now coming to your site. As I mentioned earlier in the call, um, you're going to be usually that's going to be Google ads based traffic, pay per click traffic. So the first one of the first things you're going to be focused on or you need to be focused on in the first month is just getting your traffic right. So you're going to switch on your ads. You, before then, you don't know what search terms you're going to get. You don't know how much of what search terms you're going to get. You don't know what products people are going to want to click on. You don't know anything. Right. So you're learning in that first month and you're refining um, your Google ads. You're adding negative keywords. You're, you might be modifying your bids to increase or decrease the amount of traffic you have coming in. Um, you know, but you, you need to get continue to get your head around Google ads and manage your Google ads. So that's the first thing. Then you have customers coming to your site. So now you have customers coming to your site um, and you're going to be, um, you have the opportunity to serve those customers. So I recommend probably now a lot more than I used to that in your first months, including the, the first month, but in your first months, plural, uh, you really focus as much as you can on customer service. Now, that can be tricky depending on what job you have, day job. You probably, most people have a day job of some sort. Um, it can be tricky to work your customer service around that, but anything you can do to talk to customers to help customers, to serve customers is going to result in more sales in the early stages, um, particularly if you can talk to people on the phone. Um, there's two reasons for that. One, sales are just easier to close on the phone. That's just the reality, right? Um, you're going to close more sales if you talk to people. But secondly, it gives you an opportunity to speed up the feedback on, on what's happening in your business. So, if you get a customer on the phone or it could be via the online chat or it could be via email as well, you you have the opportunity not only to serve them and to try and progress a, a sale with that person, but you also have an opportunity to ask them questions about your business and learn something about what you're doing. So I would recommend that people who are taking phone calls or even have VAs who take phone calls for them, if you're a bit further down the track, you have a, a list of questions that you're going to ask people when they're on the phone with you and you're going to record the answers to those questions. Um, now, you might only ask each customer one question. You don't want to pile on 10 questions onto somebody on the phone because that's not why they're called, but you can always slip on in. Like, uh, is there any reason why you wouldn't buy from our business today? Is there? Are you looking at this product on any other websites? Is there anything you didn't understand on our on our website. Is there anything you thought was missing from our product page while you're looking at it now that you'd love to see? Um, you know, is there some questions that we're not answering for you, either about our business or about this product? And start recording those answers, right? Because that's where going to help your conversion rate optimization, which is the other thing you're working on in your first month, along a lot to actually have um, feedback from actual customers who are actually in the market for buying your products um, because the conversion rate optimization stuff for a lot of businesses is going to be unique to them as in you can't necessarily just go onto YouTube and look at how do I do conversion rate optimization for my Shopify store. Um, really all you're going to get there is a bunch of general information which may not even be relevant to the experience your customers are having on your site and it can lead you down all sorts of rabbit holes about, oh, well, I'm going to go and try this thing on my site because I heard Captain Bobo Head on YouTube say that this is the thing that improved his conversion rate by 50 zillion percent, which is probably bullshit anyway. But uh, and then you'll go and try things that you don't didn't even need to do in the first place and waste a whole bunch of time and possibly money. So getting feedback from your customers is something you should prioritize in your first months in business. Um, and then finding ways to build any feedback you get or um, going through a process of conversion rate optimization based on your competition, right? So this is an important thing. When you're doing high ticket drop shipping, you're a reseller, which means you're not selling your own products. You're not selling, you don't have some unique thing that you're doing. It means you're selling products that other people usually are also selling 
usually also selling online. And so your customers are often looking at other people's websites that sell the exact same product that you're selling. So that means that one of the ways that you improve your conversion rate is by presenting something that is better or more compelling or more persuasive than what your competitors are, right? This, this is how you win at marketing. You have a better offer, right? So we talk about offer. You know, if anybody wants a book to read, go and read Alex Hormozzi's $100 million offers. Great sort of approach to offer building uh, and all of that sort of thing. And, and really to get your head around what is meant when I say offer. Some people think when I say offer, I mean, you've got to offer a discount. That That's not an offer. That may be part of an offer, but that's not your overall offer. So you need to, to work out what you need to be saying to customers to persuade them to purchase from you. You need to be aware of what all of your competitors are saying to customers, right? Because if what you're saying to customers on your website or what you're presenting to them or the way that you present it is inferior to other people who are selling the same product that customers are likely also looking at their website, then clearly your chances of making sales is diminished. So you have to actually, you can't know what to put on your website or how to improve what's on your website in a way that will result in more conversions if you are unaware of what else is happening in your market, right? So we teach this little process in um, in Dropship Breakthrough and in our course that takes you through how to get an understanding of what's happening in your market and you map it out. Like who are my true competitors for the products I'm selling? And then ask you a series of questions about what they have on their website, what they're saying to customers when customers land on their website to look at those products. And then think through, okay, given all of that information, what does that mean I should do on my website? What, how should I be positioning myself in my market uh, in such a way that um, when uh, a, a customer lands there and they're doing comparison shopping uh, or, or just when they land there in general, uh, even if they're not comparison shopping, they are going to be more persuaded by my website to purchase here than somebody else's website. So that's a very, once again, a, 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 once you start getting traffic, that's your next step. And then the, the last thing I would say in the first month that you should be focused on is getting more suppliers. Now, I cannot stress the importance of this. Um, one of the biggest mistakes over the years that I've seen high-ticket dropshippers make and is that they go and they do their first round of supplier contact before launching their business to get the first products up there. And they, let's say using an earlier set of numbers, there's 20 supplies they had on their list. They go out, they get approved with five straight out of the gate before they've launched their business. People make the mistake of going, oh, great, I've got supplies. Now I'm just going to open my business and I'm going to run it and I'm going to focus on running it and I'm going to forget about that piece. Well, here's the problem with doing that. In any market, there are some brands that sell better than others. There are individual products that sell way better than others. Uh, in fact, in most long standing high ticket dropshipping businesses, you will definitely see an 80-20, a 90-10 or 95-5 of 80% of the revenue is delivered by 20% of the products or 90% of the revenue is delivered by 10% of the products on that site, right? Now, in the beginning, if you only get a limited number of suppliers, nobody gets all the suppliers, right? Nobody. Even if I did it today, I'm not going to get all the suppliers, right? Um, in the beginning is that you might just happen not to get any of the products that people particularly want to buy in your market. You might not get the best-selling brands straight away. You might not get the best-selling products straight away. Um, you might just get some average ones, which do produce some sales but aren't going to take you to where you want to go with it. And the danger is, is that if you stop at that point and you don't know that, you know, you, you can't know exactly what your best sellers or whatever are going to be until you've actually sold them, is that it can lead you down a path, once again, of not understanding correctly where your business is at. And so the, the mistake I see a lot of people make is they get some, frankly, easy to get shitty brands in their space. They don't make any sales in the first month or two. And they go, oh, this market's crap. It doesn't work. There's something wrong with this market. My ads aren't working. 
uh, I'm going to stop and I'm just going to quit or I'm going to change and do a, a new market. They go and change and do a new market and they repeat the same mistake exactly and then they go, this doesn't work. Oh, I'm going to throw in the towel on this whole drop shipping thing simply because I did it wrong but I'm not going to blame myself because that's too uncomfortable. Um, it was the ad's fault. It was my ad's fault, you know, or whatever, some variation of that. When the reality is, is that they just didn't stick with it and they stopped contacting suppliers when they should have got another five suppliers on in the next two months after they launched, which they probably could have done, been a bit more persistent and got a couple of really great selling brands and products on and that would have made all the difference. So uh, in your first 12 months of running a high ticket dropshipping business, you should be constantly trying to bring on new suppliers or supplies or going back to supplies that you didn't get in your first round of calls, right? That's an absolute must for anybody. So um, that should still be a large body of your work in those opening stages after you launch. So getting managing your Google ads, conversion rate optimization, getting more suppliers, three, and doing customer service. Those are your top priorities. Yes, in the first month, you can start to increase your knowledge around SEO and dabble a little bit and start doing some things, you know, some little on-page things. But SEO is not a priority in the first month. Simply put, because there's nothing you're going to do there that's going to make a difference anyway, because Google's not going to automatically start ranking a brand new site anyway, right? So yes, you want to get to SEO early on in the piece, like you're within your first three months or whatever. Yeah. It shouldn't be a priority right at the start. Um, so those are your priorities there. And thank you for that great question, Tom. All right. I'm going to come back. I think I have one last pre-submitted question that I wanted to get to, which was from Mark Tucker. Mark asks, how much competition should scare me away? I'm in the niche research phase, and it seems there's always several great-looking dropshipping sites up and running. Uh, good question, Mark. Um, and certainly a question you that we should ask in, in these opening stages because competition is uh, a major factor in market selection. Um, and often, particularly in some other programs out there that are inferior to ours, it doesn't get much of a mention. And this, this is actually what leads a lot of people to picking the wrong products um, and, you know, in quotation marks, failing, right? So the answer to this will vary a little bit. Um, and as always, I'll give you a number answer, but I'll say there's also a, a bit of a gray area. So if you're in the US, I would tend to not like, I would be looking at no more than 15 direct competitors in most niches. Um, so direct competitor means not Amazon, not eBay, you know, people who are, you know, either totally or in some significant way serving your niche and your ideal customer, right? And this is kind of a bit of where, where the gray area comes in, right? So you have these direct competitors, so they seem more focused, but then like some one or two of your products might be on Amazon. Well, that's not a full competitor. You don't count that as competition. Um, you're, you're more aiming at those more directly competitive sites. So 15 is my number for the US. Um if you're in Australia or the UK or, you know, some other uh, smaller population, smaller market uh, type country, Canada, for example, um, I would say the number is 10, no more than 10. Um, and if it's, if it's less, that's obviously uh, even better. On the, same, on the same, you know, flip side of that, you don't want to see no competition either. But if you see no competition, that generally the, in this day and age where e-commerce in the countries that we would generally do this practice in uh, is fairly advanced or getting more and more advanced, like a market that nobody is selling products in probably indicates that nobody is also buying those products online at all. Uh, and so it's going to be a really tough place to get started in. The exception to that might be some uh, B2B uh, niches. So those are the numbers. Now, the, the gray area comes in in terms of uh, like directness of competition which I've mentioned, and quality of competition. So sometimes you'll look at a I'll look at a market and there might be a lower number of competition competitors, direct competitors than what I've just mentioned, um, but they look really good. Like they're really good. I can see that they're really on the marketing stuff. 
We've got great looking websites. You know, they've got lots of high quality content. And I might say, look, that 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 looks a little extra, a bit difficult. And if I've got another idea where the where the com- competitors don't look that strong, um, then I might lean t- more towards that one for that reason. Um, whereas if if I go in and I see that there's like ten competitors and they're they're all just average as you know the websites what they're doing they're not really doing much SEO you know all that sort of thing, I might say well. Yeah, I'm 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 more I'm comfortable with a higher number of competitors there because I know what I'm going to do is superior is going to be superior over time to pretty much all of these, uh, and so I might adjust up how many competitors I'm prepared to live with based on that. Now that is purely judgment stuff, and you don't necessarily need to go to that level. Ninety-five percent of the times, you just go with the numbers that I've mentioned. It's going to be okay, but. You know, if you do get a particular feeling about like seeing a few other dropshipping sites up, like a few, if you're in the US and you can see three or four other dropshipping sites in your market, but the total number of direct competitors is below 15, then don't worry about it. That doesn't matter. It's a big, it's a massive market. Uh, you've got to have a bit of an abundant mindset when it comes to this. Um, and uh, unless those people running those dropship sites are in our program, they're not going to be doing a very good job in a couple, at least a couple of areas that you can take over. The number one being SEO because nobody actually teaches it possi- properly um, for high-ticket dropshipping outside of our program. And, uh, yeah, but, I mean, those are those are uh, the numbers I would go with in answer to your question, Mark. Um, so thank you very much for that. Uh, I've got a question here. Um, thank you for your explanation, John. Do you help during the LLC formation, obtaining the resale certificate, et cetera, in the US for people overseas or should we do it on our own? I can help in as far as advice on where to go and get those things is concerned, but no. I mean, we're, we're not involved in setting up companies for people or obtaining resale certificates. Those things are not difficult. Um, so if you're in a country where you can't do dropshipping, um, most people will uh, default to doing it in the US, which is perfectly fine. As as a as a non-national, you can. It, it's certainly not difficult to open a, a company in the US and and build a business. Uh, there is obviously some challenges around um, things like uh, time zone differences and whatnot. But the simple act of forming a business um, and um, you know getting an EIN for that business and resale certificates um, is not particularly complex. Um, in in some of the states in the US, and so it's it's certainly doable. Uh, there are companies in the US that can help you do those things, and I can rec- recommend one or two of those for a fee. But uh, no, I mean we, we can't do it for you. That's that's not possible in the first place. But um, we're not involved in that. So. 